The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. I have some incredible news. My second book, How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race, is now the number one new release in its category on Amazon. I'm so excited, so excited for this because we've put a lot of work into it and this was risky because as a lawyer who's focusing on negotiation and conflict resolution, talking about race seems for many to be outside of the scope of what I usually do. But again, how are we defining negotiation? We define negotiation as anytime you're having a conversation and somebody in the conversation wants something. And as the podcast is titled, Negotiate Anything, we can negotiate anything. And in my years of doing uh, all of this work in the professional world, difficult conversations about race is something that comes up over and over and over again in the workplace. And there isn't really a, a solid resource out there that blends the fundamentals of negotiation and conflict resolution and effective communication with this particular topic. So it's risky. It is risky to venture in this way, but I'm really excited and encouraged by this early result. So this is not just a win for me. This is a win for you too, because you are part of this tribe. And so a quick note about the book. Who did I write this for? I, I wrote this for the person who is passionate about changing the world and their organizations for the better. The leader who leads a diverse team and the professional who wants to learn how to overcome the hidden barriers that make it tough to connect with people with a different background. So whether you consider yourself an ally or just want to avoid making a critical mistake when discussing race, this book is for you. And for you as a podcast listener, I'm making a direct request. After six years and over 600 episodes of Negotiate Anything, I'm asking for your support in this endeavor to make the world a better place. Our goal of the American Negotiation Institute is to change the world, and this book plays a critical role in making that happen, and we would love to have your support. We have the links in the description of this episode so you can get your copy of How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race. Hey, everybody, I have a treat for you today. A lot of you have asked for episodes where people interview me on the show. So I've got a good one for you now. So my buddy, Andy Prisco, who was a former guest on the podcast, invited me to come to his program, which is called Jumpstart Mastery, where he has a lot of uh, great experts in the field of anger management emotion management and crisis negotiations and negotiations in general. And he asked me to come and talk about the new book, how to have difficult conversations about race. And I said, Hey, well, let's negotiate. Let's make this a win-win. How about we record this open conversation, this question and answer and put it on the podcast. And if you haven't yet, make sure to get your copy of the future bestseller. Yes, I am. I am putting that into the universe, the future bestseller, how to have difficult conversations about race. We have links in the description. I really, really appreciate your support. And also, this is an open Zoom call. And so please excuse the, the different levels of quality of the audio, but the quality of content, I stand behind that. So without further ado, let's jump into this episode. Kwame Christian, welcome to our group. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, thank you for having me. It is 8.06 p.m., which means I must really like y'all. 
uh, <laughs> I am here yeah. at this hour. But yeah, it's, it's great to be here. I'm excited. And I like this format too, because uh, a lot of people have been asking, uh, a lot of listeners have been saying, hey, Kwame, it's great to hear you interviewing other people, but I'd love to get to hear from you. I'd love to hear you interviewed. So this is, it's cool to kind of turn the tables here and um, and get a little bit of my own medicine here. Yeah, I think so too, Kwame. And you've made so much of your thinking and worldview available to the world through TEDx, through 5 million downloads on Negotiate Anything, to media pieces, because you're tearing up the, the Columbus business circle. People know who you are. People in Ohio know who you are. People all over the world know who you are. And um, to the extent that those platforms enable you to engage in meaningful um, and extemporaneous question answering and thought, it's really great to be able to, to do this here. Uh, real quickly in the room, I'll just go by category. You have people from behavioral health, people from workplace violence prevention, people from children, youth and family services at the government level, people from law enforcement training and a host of other disciplines that all come together at Jumpstart Mastery to engage in shared learning and consciousness uh, growing work on how we support people that can present anger, aggression, and violence, people in crisis. And uh, Kwame, you were kind enough to host me on the Negotiate Anything podcast where I got to talk about the work we do in psychiatric emergency response at the National Anger Management Association, et cetera. And, uh, you know, my uh, knowledge of you to some extent preceded Julia through your media presence and your uh, alacrity at uh, engaging in very sensitive, uh, very um, uh, clear messaging about uh, conversations and negotiation, essentially using a very non-offensive approach. And you could have written, man, you could have written about anything you wanted for your next book. Um, you really could have. You could have uh, talked about the chess games at the negotiation table, more books about negotiation, <clears throat> conversations about raising the awareness of people as negotiators and negotiation trainers, how that comes into contact with workplace uh, success. You chose this topic. Why? Uh, well, I, I would clarify, Andy. I don't think I chose it. I feel like it chose me. Oh, so, beautiful. Uh, yeah, because this isn't the book that I wanted to write next. I had a lot of other ideas. Um, you know, the first book was Finding Confidence in Conflict. That was a comfortable book. It was safe, right? But um, this one was not. And uh, I, I think maybe it helps to tell a bit of my backstory, too. The, Please, the backstory let I us know. India. Yeah, so... Coming out of school, I did some civil rights work. I was focused on health equity work and focused on um, uh, the ra racial disparities in health. So focused on infant mortality. And that's really heavy stuff, really heavy stuff. And so after doing that for a few years, I realized that I had not solved racism, believe it or not, right? <laughs> the, the problem still existed. And I, I was just saying, like, what am I doing here? Nothing is changing. This is heavy. I'm exhausted. I'm emotionally fatigued. I'm burnt out. I'm done. I'm out of here. And so I said, I'm going to go back to, to the, my love of psychology. That's what my undergrad degree is in. 
And so I really love the, the, the aspect of persuasion, negotiation, conflict resolution, um, because in, I, in my first book, I talk about how I was a people pleaser. And then I discovered negotiation in law school. And I learned that self-advocacy, conflict resolution, those types of things, they're skills, not talents. It could be learned. And so I said, this is how I'm going to have my impact on the world. I'm going to teach people how to have these difficult conversations because I believe the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. So I became a mediator, have hundreds of mediations under my belt, business lawyer, negotiator, um, negotiating contracts, things like that. And then the, the part that I loved about the work the most was the negotiation trainings that I put on to build the business of, of the law firm. And then I said, you know what, that's more in line with what I want to do. And that's what led to the American Negotiation Institute. Now, fast forward to um, 2020, the American Negotiation Institute is growing. We have a team, we have a staff. Um, getting more clients and everything. And then the world shuts down with COVID. And then we have all of the social unrest related to race relations in the U.S. And so to, to give you an example of how far away I ran from this topic after I left <laughs> civil rights, and Andy, you know, because you saw the intro, I, uh, <laughs> I said, you know what, I'm not watching any news anymore. No news. And if anybody posts anything about the news, current events, politics or yeah. race, I will block them on social media. That yeah. includes somebody named Whitney Christian, my wife. It's <laughs> like, listen, yeah. Whitney, you are just a little bit too woke for me. Um, I'm not interested. So then Whitney, <clears throat> then Whitney, who uh, apparently listens to my podcast a little bit too much, decided to negotiate with me. And she said, well, Kwame, you, you always tell people that you have to have these difficult conversations that you need to lean into these difficult conversations and you're being a little bit hypocritical by not having the conversations because people look to you as a leader and you're particularly qualified. You're a black male, you have a background in civil rights and you have an expertise in negotiation. People need to know how to have these difficult conversations. And that's how it came about. I put on a webinar and it, the, like the post went really viral. It got a lot of interest and a literary agent reached out to me and said, this is the book. This is your next book. And I said, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Why? It's yeah. Kind of like what? The Godfather. As soon as I get out, they pull me back. Yeah. In. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the third movie. Yes. Laura's <laughs> applauding. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. That, Kwame, um, it's such a tremendous story. And in your TEDx talk, you actually get into a little more of the formative experiences you had uh, from what I could derive. You had parents that were very good at inculcating, leaning into difficulty in you. They were able to pass on the necessity, the acceptance that life is going to have discomfort. And if there's things that you want, you're going to have to go after it and earn it. And, you had some formative experiences on on engaging the world and even sounding differently when you arrived to um, the United States here and and really leaned into a lot of personal transformation. What would you say your formative experiences are that predispose you to having something to say about this topic? Does your company invest in professional development training? If you believe that your team would benefit from a negotiation workshop, all you need to do is go to our website, fill out the workshop request form, and then we'll set up a time to chat. These workshops are completely customizable and we've done them all around the country. 
Negotiation and conflict resolution skills are beneficial across all professions, but they're especially useful in procurement, purchasing, sales, sourcing, and contract management. Our calendar is filling up quickly and we even have some workshops scheduled for next year. If you think you might want one, I'd suggest reaching out soon so you don't miss out. Check out the link in the description to learn more. And we will be right back after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Yeah, and when I think about it, it's kind of like a, it's it's almost like a picture perfect origin story. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. Like if we were a Marvel comic, like, right. you know, yeah. Kwame origin, you know? Yeah, like Wolverine right. next. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm a first generation Caribbean American. Uh, my dad's from Dominica, mom's from Guyana. And um, so we, I grew up in Tiffin, Ohio, really small town in the Midwest. And I have the stats in the book. I forget what it is. But when we moved there in, in, <laughs> in my early years, I think the statistic was something like there were about 18,600 people in Tiffin, Ohio, and 18,200 were white. So just to give you an idea of the demographics of the situation. So yeah. I looked different. I still had a, a Caribbean accent at the time, so I sounded different. So I stood out and, you know, it was, it was tough. But the, the benefit, though, that I, I look back and I appreciate those times because it helped me to learn how to connect with people who have different backgrounds for me. Right. So everywhere I went throughout my early childhood, I always stood out. So, for instance, in, uh, <laughs> in Tiffin, everybody said, you sound you have a Caribbean accent. Where are you from? And then when I would go visit my family in, Amer in uh, the Caribbean, they would say, you sound American. I'm like, where is home for me? <laughs> right? <laughs> and, so, and so, but it really helped me because every time that I, I met somebody, there was a little bit of, uh, there was always some kind of difference that I had to, to cross. And that became a really, really helpful skill as I developed and grew as a professional as a person and a professional. And so it really helped me to understand both sides of, of the situation. So growing up in white America in the Midwest, I understand where the mindset can come from and how if you don't have an experience with somebody who's a person of color, it's really hard to appreciate and understand that lived experience. And then being a person of color, <laughs> I have that experience too. And so it's been really valuable to, to be able to be fluid in these spaces. And so I was able to de develop this skill set that I carry to this day. And, you know, when I hear you talking about those formative experiences, even though the context 
is very personal and based on your formative experiences of being um, in in such a minority of looking and sounding different where you lived, the the one of the core values that I'm deriving out of what you said that really is necessary uh, is this capacity to understand another person's context or at least confer the notion that they're seen, heard, and understood, which is why I think um, you you are so naturally, you present uh, a, a very empathic um, uh, aura in, in your engagement with the world that seems to have been, you know, there are some people who are not oriented to empathy and it's something they have to work very hard to acquire. Would you say that empathy came naturally as a result of your circumstances or did you have to go after it because you were angry or feeling um uh you know uh, somehow not understood and needed to get louder to be heard it's a great question and i would say that i'm not a naturally empathetic person it came more as a skill but i think this really unique background gave me a really good foundation for empathy. So once I started to really invest in developing that skill, it was easier for me to do it just because of this background, because I realized in order to connect, I had to reorient myself in different ways. And then Mm -hmm. when I started to invest more in empathizing and learning how other people see, think, and feel about these situations, I think this background, the diverse background that I had, gave me a a leg up when it came to understanding because I was privy to seeing a lot of these stories firsthand. Yeah. Yeah. It it sounds to me that that really has shaped your context. So let's, let's talk about the title of the book and let me front load you a little bit. So how to have the difficult conversations about race contemplates that they're difficult in many instances. And um, when we consider today's world, algorithms on devices that are uh, oriented toward optimizing your attention and what you spend time looking at on the information streams and how that's individualized and um, the amount of uh, attention that is uh, being dedicated in the information streams and in the media and in our workplaces, the race, um, the race, um conversation is here it's no longer avoidable it's here and it's going to be had in the workplace um uh and in particular i i would contend and 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 perhaps others can disagree and it's been my observation that there is a tremendous amount of attention being paid to equity within our bipoc community where we have instruments and policies now that are including BIPOC BIPOC language. And um, those conversations, when engaged in in a uh, less than adept way, can um, uh, can derail meetings and trainings where people I mean, Laura and I were giving a training not long ago in a part of the country where the conversation is very active and present. And there are people who avoid the conversation. And then there are people who want to have the conversation, whether you want to have it or not. (laughs) There's both kinds of people, you know, like there are people we're having this conversation. And um, 
you know, there may be people who aren't ready, you know? So uh, the conversations here, we start to have the conversation and Laura and I are, are giving a training and someone wanted to start the conversation at a time where um, space was ordinarily not made for it. So we made some space and then someone wanted to make more space and we had to reframe what the space looked like so we can have that conversation at a different time. And we got through it. Uh, but I will say that it was, it was a tough conversation because um, there are people who work in various domains. We work in anger management, self-regulation and how to deescalate someone when they want to stick you in the throat with a pen. Someone wants to have a conversation about race in that there, there's a mode that we have had for years on how we train the material. It kind of surprised us. We tried to adapt. We've gotten better. We immersed ourselves. What's the discussion? What's What are the topics that are so important right now? And we're getting better at that conversation. So we've had our formative experiences on how the conversation can derail. I'm sure many of you have. Maybe that's a presumption. I certainly have seen the conversation um, devolve in other areas of uh, the behavioral health system. So you have identified an approach to making these conversations more easily uh, among human beings. Maybe you can share with us what that's about, because I think people want to know. Yeah. So there, I think one of the things we have to realize here is that when it comes to the conversations about race, they're particularly challenging. I think most people can can observe that and perceive that. And we have to ask ourselves why. Why is it that these conversations are so tough? So two of the things that really impact the difficult nature of the conversations are, number one, identity and morality. So identity, these are questions about who we are as a person as an individual, how we see ourselves, and morality, what it means to be a good or bad person. And if those two things are threatened, then it leads to a heightened emotional response. And so when we're having a conversation about, um, you know, business-related issues, yeah, they're really tough. But then when you add an element of race into those conversations, that makes it even more difficult. And, you know, as a negotiation consultant, I've been in, I've been in the room when we're negotiating multi-million dollar deals. And those are tough conversations, but it pales in comparison when we think about the level of emotionality to the conversations about race, because people, their identity, who they are, and their self-conception of somebody who's a good person, those are threatened. And so that's why it leads to heightened levels of emotionality. And so the conversation, I like to call, I consider it a difficult conversation because of the emotional element but also the strategic element as well, because they can be really tricky. Even if everything goes smoothly, the reason why it goes smoothly is because people have been there are very intentional about the way that they have the conversation. And so the, the framework that I like to use for emotion management in all of our conversations is the compassionate curiosity framework, simple three-step framework, um, because under the, under duress, most people aren't going to remember more than three steps, Andy. So I want to keep it yeah. simple. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so the, it goes first step, acknowledge and validate the emotions. 
Second step, get curious with compassion. Third step, joint problem solving. And it's fluid. So you can understand what to say and when to say it for maximum impact. And I know the, the folks here being in uh, negotiation and anger management, uh, you all know the psychology of the amygdala, labeling emotions, affect labeling, all of that type of stuff, the psychology that goes behind it. But a lot of the, the folks who are in the business world who are having these tough conversations don't. And uh, one of the things that you said earlier, Andy, is true. The before we could kind of get away with pretending it's not an issue. But oh yeah. Now it's uh, things have changed. Things have changed, and so this is an issue. And and one of the toughest things about it is that a lot of times it's not abundant. It's not really clear when, if, or when race becomes an issue. So, for example, I think about this as just one of the many issues that could be germane in a conversation. So as a lawyer, one of the skills we have to have is issue spotting. So as we're problem solving, what are the relevant issues to this conversation? So in the business world, finances, finances are often an issue. We have budget restrictions. We have to make payroll, those type of things. So in many difficult conversations in the workplace, money will be an issue. Time will be an issue. Personnel will be an issue, right? We need to determine whether or not that's an issue. And then sometimes if you're working with a diverse team, race will become an issue. And sometimes you'll be in a conversation and one person thinks race is an issue. Another person doesn't think race is an issue. Right. And so then you have to have a conversation about race to determine whether or not race is relevant. It may or may not be, <laughs> but right. the conversation has become about race. Right. And I, I, I use the analogy of, of parenting in the book um, because growing up, I had parents. As I got older, I had friends who had parents. I, I've seen this, right? So I understand it. But then I realized that sometimes I have friends who, have, who are parents, and then all of a sudden during conversations that didn't seem to, to apply to parenting at all, they would some, for some reason bring up parenting or their kids or something. I'm like, okay, I get it. You got a kid. Cool. Great. And then <laughs> I had kids. Yeah. And then right. Realized, and then Pluto, you landed on a different planet, man. Exactly. Yeah. And then I realized, wow. I lived my life surrounded by children and parents and I did not get it because yeah. now everything is about my kids. Hey, Kwame, you want to hang out? Yeah. Now it's about my kids. Can I do that? Hey, yeah. you want to move to this place? Yeah. That's about my kids too. And so now that this is a, a very salient element of my identity, it's touching parts of my life that I didn't realize it would. And so in America where the, the majority of the people here are, are white, the, the, it's hard to really understand what it feels like to be a minority in a, in a country because your, your identity isn't as salient as of an issue because most people share that identity. And I had a friend who, who was a, who's a lawyer, an older lawyer, probably in his seventies or eighties. And he said, well, I grew up and I did not see a black person until I got to college and played football. I didn't see another black person. And then now as a lawyer, everybody in my firm is white. Everybody at my church is white. Everybody on my block is white. And then I went to Africa and I became acutely aware of my whiteness for the first time in my life. Yeah. And it's not until you have an experience like that, that you realize, oh my goodness, this identity is going to touch on more things than I realized. And so that's one of the challenges because sometimes people can see that race is an issue <laughs> because they have 
been racialized in many ways. But if you haven't had that experience, it's tough. And that's one of the other elements that makes this so difficult. Well, it would seem to me, Kwame, that, you know, based on that description, this book addresses the phenomena uh, of someone who has an awareness of their identity, their um, race topics that are very personal to them with someone who does not. Possibly, I think I, I would I would not be surprised that if we were to directly code the aversive interactions on race between two human beings, one instance at a time, I would not be surprised if we saw one person has awareness to some degree, one has considerably less or none. Based oh, yeah. on the, the kind sure. of examples that you provided. So having said that, we also it would seem to me and I would imagine it's in your book because your book is not going to be released until September 12th yeah. that we're going to find in there the responsibility that the conversation initiator has to have over some capacity to self-regulate while engaging with someone who does not have an awareness or an appreciation. And we have to suspend, as Laura Moss would would say, our reactivity so that we can have the conversation. Does that make Absolutely. sense? Absolutely. Oh, yes. Talk yeah, about that a little bit. It can be challenging because just let's let's take let's zoom out a little bit and just talk about human interactions in general. Um, a lot of times we when I'm doing the, the negotiation and conflict resolution trainings, people talk about they would ask me, hey, how do I manage the emotions of the other person everybody's thinking about the, the emotions of the other person well hey you you can't manage somebody yeah. else's yeah. emotions if you can't manage your own <laughs> right and yeah. so there is a responsibility that we all have to to find some way to control our own emotions before during and after these conversations and it can be frustrating and i hear a lot of people say things like it shouldn't be the responsibility of people of color to have these conversations okay I see how theoretically that could be something that you believe, <laughs> right? But <for> me, <laughs> right. And so my thing is, listen, I'm a lawyer. I'm a problem solver. I don't, I don't make these problems when I solve the problems. And so if I want to create a, a better society, a better world, then I want to take some responsibility to, to make things better. And it, a lot of times as a person of color, I see things that other people don't just because of my identity. And so for me, I, as somebody who wants to make things better, I want to take that step be that person, that responsible party to have that tough conversation and, and initiate the conversation. And that kind of goes into to what Julia said in the chat. How do we start the conversation? This is really tough because it's kind of like jumping into a cold pool. It's like, all right, once I get into the pool, I know I can swim, but man, I don't want to jump in. <laughs> That's, it's, it's really tough. And so I, I give a really simple framework for entering the conversation. It's called Yeah, give it up. Let us hear it. Yeah situation impact invitation situation impact invitation and this is a really simple way to enter the conversation so what do we want to do is first identify and describe the situation using what i call naked facts so these are facts that are stripped of all interpretation judgment and um or any other you know thing that might be a little bit biased in our favor or in, other, in somebody's side Whoever is looking at the situation, no matter what side of the issue that you're on, you can agree that those that is, in fact, what has occurred in, in this situation. And so then we talk about the impact. What is the impact as it relates to me? So what is the impact of what happened on me personally? How did it make me feel? What did it 
how did it affect me in a substantive type of way, right? Those type of things. Because again, if I'm talking about how what you said or you did made me feel, you can't deny that because you're not in my brain. That would be kind of strange, right? So then the next one is invitation because we don't want this to be an ambush, but I think it needs to be a conversation that has to be had. So are we having this conversation now or later? So I don't want the person to feel scared like they're, this is being thrust upon them. And so the beauty of this is that it can be really short, really succinct, and it removes any friction and resistance to entering the conversation. Because a lot of times with the way that we describe the situation, um, it invites resistance at the beginning of the conversation or before the conversation even, even begins. And so we're fighting uphill. And so I want the person to feel comfortable and safe entering the conversation so we can engage in a deeper way. Me, and, and, and minimally so that the person doesn't perceive you as a threat. You know, I'm listening to you, Kwame, and I'm hearing your context around how we engage in de-escalation with someone who's angry or presenting aggression. I hear like I'm looking at Dan's face, my dear friend and, and old mentor, Dan Gapsh. I'm hearing Kwame describe specific behavioral observation charting instead of inferences. In other words, in healthcare, Kwame, and as an attorney, you probably adjudicated some of these cases over the medical record where someone would describe the patient behavior as aggressive or threatening or harassing. And what we're looking for is um, the patient in question raised their right hand over their head with a closed fist and said, I'm going to brain you with my um, rock hard punch. And we write that in the chart. So when we tell the person situation, so if I understand you correctly, you told me that you were going to bludgeon me with your right hand as you held it over your head. Like that's pretty indisputable as opposed to when you threatened me, you know? So we describe the situation with specific observation and no inferences. Does that make sense? 100%. Yeah. yeah. And, and Julia is asking for an example here. So let's say we're working in uh, an environment and we realize that, all right, hey, at the executive level, there is zero racial diversity or gender diversity at the executive level. Plenty of diversity at the lower levels of the organization, but literally zero. And People might say, Kwame, where does this exist? In more places than you think. <laughs> okay. so, and so what we could say is, listen, um, what I've observed is that there's zero racial diversity in this organization. And my concern is that this will have an impact on our ability to grow and thrive going into the future. So I want to have a conversation with you about what we can do to address this situation short, sweet, there's, there's very little resistance that can come from that based on disagreeing with the, the contentions that were made. Right. Or even maybe observing what is seen in, in, in the strengths-based uh, interpretation, which might be, hey, I'd just like to share an observation that everybody in this executive leadership meeting is white except me. You know, I, and I'm not saying that it would be said yeah. that casually, but that's the level of observation. And Exactly. And and nobody can really contest it. Now, while they may be immediately starting to analyze your motivation, you're going to follow that up with step two of the Kwame formula, which is I feel insecure. I feel not OK. I feel um, uh, a little frightened that uh, we're not going to be able to grow as a diverse organization in our community because this is the trend at the executive leadership level. When can we talk about this next week? Next month, when can we have this conversation? That's what it sounds like you're offering 
as a pretty simple, easy to remember formula. Do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. That's it. And again, we, we want this to be a simple entry point. I'm not, I'm not arguing anything at this point. I'm just describing things and then inviting you to chat. And then once we get into the conversation, they, then we use the framework. They might not be presenting with an emotional challenge at that time. So I'm going to skip step one and go to getting curious with compassion. So tell me about how you feel about what I described, right? Beautiful. And then have them speak, right? Okay. Now, what challenges do you see from this issue with diversity? And I'm going to ask questions. Then they might get defensive. Hey, before I, before I continue, it seems like this, you're a little bit uncomfortable with this conversation. Now, am I sound, is that right? Yeah. And then you just flow using the framework, right? It, it makes it so much easier. And the beauty is you're doing less talking. You're, it, I, for the listeners of the podcast, I, I want you to think about the podcast episodes you've heard. That's how I negotiate. It's me asking questions, making the person feel safe and letting them do all of the talking while I control the conversation by asking questions. Yeah. And Kwame, without you kind of tipping your hand on what's in the book, is there content in the book about what happens in the second conversation? So you've scheduled the tough conversation. Now you got to get into it. And yes. is there more guidance on that discussion? Yeah, 100%. And so what we have to do before we get into the conversation, is we have to prepare. We have to ask ourselves, what's my goal in this conversation? Do I just feel bad about the situation and I want to be heard? Do I actually want to create some positive change? Do I want a commitment to, to making a difference? Something like that. I need to be really targeted. Now this just becomes a negotiation and the conversation we're having about it just happens to be the topic about race, but the same types of principles and fundamentals of negotiation and conflict resolution that we talk about on this podcast all the time. That's what we would apply. The only, the, the only difference is that we're using it in a different context. Okay. So the, the template is, um, uh, is adept. You can move it um, from uh, the first conversation to the next one. And it sounds like what I'm hearing is that the, the model itself with the compassionate curiosity really is about listening more than speaking and, and reciting the situation over and over again. It's really about, getting in there with novelty circuitry and curiosity. What would you say? How do you engender that? Let's say you're a manager and this is a new skill set for you and you want to start leaning into a need based on workplace experiences and maybe feedback from executive leadership. I have to start demonstrating more curiosity about this that is genuine. Where yeah. can one begin to develop that? Well, it, it takes practice, Andy. That's that's what we have to do. And one of the things that um, I've realized is that people in the professional world, they're they're often thinkers. They are deep thinkers, and we have to think about the way that fear can hold us back. How fear operates. Now, fear is a very very fascinating emotion. It's a crafty emotion. And so if your fear doesn't want you to do something, it will come up with some very ingenious ways to hold you back. Oh, and so yeah. what I've seen is that a lot of professionals will over-intellectualize the situation just so they don't need to have the conversation. So they will say, wow, I learned just how many ways I can fail. Yeah, let me read a book on that. That book was really great. It referenced another book. That's, that's really great. Oh, it said I should go to this training. Let me go to this masterclass. Okay, really good. Good, good, good. Let me talk to my buddy about this. And now it's like nine years later. 
Yeah, yeah we right. And with no change. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so the, that's why I've, I've worked really hard to, to make sure that I simplify all of this, to make sure that somebody can read a chapter in the book, immediately put it into action. There's nothing that is overly complicated because this is an action-based uh, ideology here. Because what we need to do is I want you to learn this to have the difficult conversations. I mean, that's what the book is, is titled. It's not how to think about race, not how to, right. you know. How to talk about it, about man. It. Yeah. <laughs> we have to talk about it. And yeah. that's why at the end of the chapter, we have, um, after every single chapter, we have discussion questions because I want them to be able to read this with other people and practice the skills in a safe environment because you just learn something new, talk about the topic, get those reps under your belt because it's not going to feel comfortable. It's not going to feel natural, but it is a skill that takes time to develop. People might say, I don't feel comfortable. I'm not good at this. Cool. I wasn't good at most things when I first started it either. So the best yeah. way to get good is by doing it over and over well, and over again. I, I, I love how um, from your professional context, cultural context, academic context, it's like Laura says, also, we reach people differently. We speak to the same values and principles using some different words and some different formative experiences to to confer the learning. But it's what you do it with this with with the subject of race. Arguably, this could be about anything. I think about the tough conversations about covid where wherever one may stand on the vaccine or masking issue is not the point. Let's have conversations where people aren't shooting each other in the moment. And, you know, big cities just a year and a half ago were calling a number of us in this room. We're having we're having conflict in the convenience store between the cashier and the customer. We're having conflict in the dressing area at the department store over the, the covid safety stuff. Can you come help? I mean, a number of us in, in this room were getting these phone calls. Workplace violence prevention phones were ringing off the hook, James. I'm thinking about all of the environments where where we need to be able to have the conversation about the tough subjects. And, um, you know, race is, the, is, is certainly a big one. But on the other hand, Kwame, you're you're leveling a method where it doesn't have to be about race. You could use this method in in a number of other tough tough subjects, so to speak. Absolutely. I mean, this book really is a book about how to have difficult conversations about insert tricky subject here. And, um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's really what yeah. it's about. And I think about, you know, there are so many different cognitive biases, but one of my favorite ones, and I don't know if this is the real name, but the author described it in a cool way. So I'm going to go with that. They call it the, uh, the Frank Sinatra bias. So he has that song, New York, New York. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And so there's a bias where if somebody has done this thing, we think they can do that thing. So if somebody was an NFL quarterback, I, I'm going to assume that you can coach little league football, right? Or I, I'm assuming that you could come in and, and teach my, my, my son how to lift, something like that, right? And so with this, I want them, the, the reader, to have that kind of bias for themselves. If I can have a difficult conversation about race, I can have a difficult conversation with my wife about where our kids go to school. I can yep. have a difficult conversation with my colleague about how we should allocate the budget. And if we can master this thing, everything else should be feel pretty easy. Yeah. Beautiful, Kwame. So good. So good, man. 
Well, you know, I'd love to, um, we have some big thinkers in here. I'd love to open the floor and see if folks have questions of Kwame uh, or some thoughts or feedback or feel free. You know, I, I warmed him up in the green room. This guy's ready, you know, for the heavy questions, for the tough questions. So if there is one, please level it. And uh, the floor is open. Well, I'm going to jump in if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, of course it is. You have the right so, beard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That puts me first in the line, I guess. Yeah. No, my, so Kwame, thank you f- so much for all that you've shared um, thus far. I can't help but think that the common denominator, and, and this kind of popped into my mind as Andy was speaking, particularly about the masking issues and, the, and, and all of that, but it really feels like the common denominator is fear. I'm, I'm wondering, do you, do you step into that or, or do you find your, I mean, do you, I have this propensity to like, if we're going to talk about it, let's take it all the way down to the bedrock here. So what can we get after the fear components that are inside of this that are maybe charging the, the conflict? And, and I just wondered if you'd unpack that or, or speak into that a little bit if you've got some unique perspectives. Oh, yes. So for sure, when we think about fear, there's going to be fear no matter what side of the aisles you are on this, right? No matter who you are in the conversation, there's going to be some element of fear. And I think the the fear comes from the fact that the risks associated with the conversation are very, very, very clear, but the payoffs often aren't as clear. Because if we say, hmm, things That's aren't good. great, but they're not horrible, um, mm-hmm maybe this is just better (laughs) than taking that risk because sometimes people could say, I don't want to have this conversation because I don't want to risk being rejected. I don't want to be ostracized. I don't want to be canceled. I don't want to be misunderstood. I care about this person and I don't want to offend them. And a lot of times what we're doing is we are deciding not to engage in the conversation, not for the betterment, betterment of the situation, but for our own emotional comfort. Right. And I think we it requires a lot of introspection to, to really get down deep and figure out what it is that's holding us back. And it's usually some variation of fear. And so, James, when you think about the, uh, the compassionate curiosity framework, it's designed not only for the external negotiation with other people, but also it's designed to be flipped internally for the internal negotiation for, with yourself. It's a tool for introspection and emotional regulation. So acknowledge and validate our own emotions. What am I feeling? I'm feeling afraid. Okay. We're not going to stop there because most people, a lot of times we feel multiple things. So, okay, Kwame, I'm not letting you off the hook. I feel afraid. What else do you feel? Well, I'm feeling a little bit insecure because I don't feel like I know enough about this. All right. What else? I I feel a little bit awkward because I feel like it's going to be a clunky conversation. All right, good. So why do you feel that way? Well, I feel like I haven't taken the time to learn and I'm a little bit embarrassed about that as well. Um, I be, I, what else? Like, why else are you feeling that way? Well, this is really, really important. So I feel conflicted too, because I want to have the conversation, but this fear is holding me back. Now we switch to the third step, which is joint problem solving. So internally directed joint problem solving is reconciling the differences between our hearts and minds. What would satisfy me emotionally in this situation? And what would satisfy me substantively in terms, in terms of what would actually solve the problem at hand? So emotionally, mm-hmm. I don't want to feel these way, this way, right? So my, my amygdala is telling me to, to pack up and run. But in order to actually feel better in the long term and solve the problem at hand, the, the right answer is actually to lean in and have the conversation. 
but how do I have the conversation in a way that makes me not that that minimizes the 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 fears that I'm having here? Well, let me take the time to prepare. I'm not feeling prepared. I'm going to take the time, prepare for this conversation, and I'm going to have this conversation. And to make sure that I have the conversation, I'm going to send this email right now to schedule it so my fear doesn't allow me to back out before tomorrow, right? Brilliant. And so like, that's the way that you can use that internally to help us go overcome that fear and whatever other emotion is that we're, that we're wrestling with. Thank you. That, it's predicated on a very high degree of self-awareness. I come across a lot of folks who, who just haven't walked into that terrain yet. And in fact, I was working with a guy today where I asked him how he felt. And he said, well, I, I felt devalued. And I said, that's, I, I appreciate that. But how did you feel? That, that's sort of a result. Like, and, and he was really confused. Like, well, I, I haven't really had a lot of time talking about sorting out my feelings. And so I think sometimes that it slows the process down. And in business, man, we're driving forward, right? We got to make progress. But I think it. I think what I'm hearing from you is it's going to take as long as it takes, and that's okay, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. Spot on, James. Spot yeah. on. And that's the thing. It takes it takes time. But as you go through this this process of introspection, it goes faster. And so sometimes, if I'm in the the heat of the moment moment in a conversation, what I'll do is I'll take notes. And a lot of times, you know, fun fact, I'm not writing anything. I'm just scribbling. <laughs> I'm just trying to. It's almost like a meditation just getting that, that feedback on my hands as I go. And I'm going through this process in my mind and people will give you 20, 30 seconds to just write in silence. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kwame. I appreciate that. Uh, my good friend, Dan Gapsh, uh, Dan, uh, you had your hand up earlier, uh, please. So, um, this is fascinating. I think that one of the things that we do a lot of times in our career field is we understand what you were talking about earlier about, fear and things like that in the people we're caring for. And we don't think about it in the moment of what we're feeling. Um, and I was listening a couple of days ago on one of your Ted talks. And I loved, you had an example of your wife and cereal. And I thought that was a pretty amazing because being able to apply this, not just in these crisis situations or these huge situations, but also in daily conversations, um, you know, how effective it is and, you know, how you described your kind of acknowledgement of uh, fight, flight or freeze was really important. And I just wanted to see if you could add some to that about this conversation, not just about race, but any kind of these controversial, you know, or kind of striking conversations? Yeah, great question, Dan. So I, I'll start off with a quote, uh, the great Bruce Lee. He said, I don't fear the man who knows a thousand kicks. I fear the man who has practiced one kick 1,000 times. Yeah. For me, compassionate curiosity is that kick. So when Kai gets out of bed, I'm watching the, I'm watching the bedroom door right now as we're, as we're having yeah. this, right? So instead of just saying, all right, you're small, I'm big, I'm putting you in bed physically, I'm going to say, hey, Kai, you're out of bed. What's up? Well, I don't want to go to bed. Well, tell me more about that. Well, I don't think it's fair that you and mommy get to stay up and I don't. Oh, so you, you're a little bit upset. You're a little bit frustrated that you have to stay in bed, right? Yeah. I'm frustrated and you don't think it's fair, right? 
Yeah, I don't think it's fair. No, that makes sense because we are out of bed and you are in bed. I can understand why you feel frustrated. So what is it that you think we're trying to accomplish with you going to bed at this time? Well, to go to sleep. Well, why do you think it's important to sleep? So I can get big and strong like you. Okay. So what do you think we should do next? I should go back to bed. Right. Yeah. I could just, I could, I could just leverage him. I mean, he has no rights, <laughs> but, <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but I'm going to take this as an opportunity to practice. And so I, I think it's really important, especially for us as, as people who are practitioners and negotiators. And if you're listening to this podcast, you are a negotiator. If you have to interact with human beings from time to time, um, we should take the time to, to practice these skills every day. And the more often we use it in these more benign situations, the more natural it'll be in the harder situations too. So beautifully put, you know, it sounds like Kai is rediscovering your intelligence on a daily basis. That's what my dad, <laughs> used, my dad used to tell me all the time, you know, you're rediscovering my intelligence, son. Uh, Beth, you had your hand up and uh, uh, Laura, I I'm so delighted that you came on camera and I want to make sure we get you before the end. But Beth, uh, any question or feedback for Kwame? What I'm hearing from you resonates with me in a lot of the work that I do uh, as a mediator. Um, and I'm wondering if if you're connecting back to some of Marshall Rosenberg's work with the nonviolent communication, because this all sounds very, very much like that. Uh, for example, the power of ignite and, and then connecting also with some other um, uh, models that we've talked about here, uh, where bottom line, uh, acknowledging somebody uh, makes a huge difference. But in acknowledging, asking questions about the situation, the impact, the needs, and the goals around that is, um, sounds like that's what you've done, only you've simplified it. So we got nice, cool questions at the end of every chapter that we can use to help people with. Yep. Yep. And so I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you all in and uh, on a little thing. So I'm an avid reader. I try to get through a book a week in, in years that I'm not writing a book. That's my goal. And so the, the trigger that I use to whether or not I'm going to read a book is if two people that I respect, um, recommend the book and Beth, you are now number two recommending okay. that book. And so now it's on my list. So I'll check that out. And so I don't know if you caught this at the beginning, but I, I'm a mediator as well. So I've gotten a, like a few hundred under my belt. And um, when it comes to compassionate curiosity and my approach, really what it was, was the me synthesizing what I was doing and like all of those tools and tactics and trying to figure out how I can package it. And so what's interesting is like, if you see the, uh, the TED talk, you go from the TED talk, finding confidence in conflict to the book, finding confidence in conflict, they're separated by about a year. It's really the evolution of that thought. So the TED Talk, I introduced the idea of compassionate curiosity there, uh, but you don't have any steps, no steps, just the idea, just the, 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 the theoretical underpinnings of it, right? And then in the next book, when the book came out the next year, I said, I need to have something a bit more concrete. I need to be able to walk people through exactly step by step what it is. So I spend a lot of time just after every mediation, I'm like, okay, what did I do well? What didn't I do well? I did that. What, what is that? Cause I can identify the different tactics from the different negotiation books, conflict resolution books, the psychology books. Like, okay. What is that? But how can I do it in a simpler type of way? And so I think about the, the quote by Leonardo da Vinci, uh, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Yeah. And it took me years to figure out how to synthesize it in a way that could be understood by everybody. 
And so you're right. You're seeing the mediation background. You're seeing the conflict resolution. Because I was thinking about something that would apply not just in specific situations, like a tactic is very reactionary. I see this, I run a play essentially, but I'm like, what is that thing that I could use in every single conversation, not only as a mediator, but as a husband, as a father, everything. And then this is what I came up with. Yeah, it does become a PCU and, and it helps when you're trying to initiate that conversation about race, um, which is something that I found for the first time in all my hundreds of years <clears throat> uh, that I had to use just recently when I had to talk with somebody uh, about the fact that there may be a racial element involved in what was happening in this workplace scenario and kind of had to tiptoe into it with some hesitance. It wasn't fear, but it was concern about how my message might be received by this person because my intent, and of course, you know, the impact can be very different than your intent. My intent was to broaden the dialogue and, and perhaps expose one of the little elephants in the room. And with us, because we happen to be two people who were truly interested in, in working in this scenario and, and helping to, to make it a better uh, environment, it worked. But it, it was a little, a little touchy-feely there. Can I bring up race with this person? And, and, yeah. it, and it, it worked for us. It can be really touchy-feely, and you're not sure how the other person would respond. And that's yeah. another thing that people are afraid of, too. They're like, I'm not sure how the other person would respond to this situation. And again, that's fear holding us back. And we just have to remember that we're only responsible for approaching this in the best, most respectful way possible. Yeah. I cannot control their response, but I can manage it when it comes. And I want people to feel like they have the skills and have the confidence in themselves to, to know that no matter what happens, you can navigate the conversation in a way that is relatively safe. So can we um, in order? <laughs> yes, please <Yeah>. do. <laughs> we order campaign. We, um, so I'll put the link in the description of the podcast, but yeah, I'll send you all the, the link to pre-order. That'd be really helpful for me because we're, we're really pushing the pre-order for that first week. That would be really, really, really helpful. Now, this is this is my sister now, so I gotta, I gotta, I gotta pry her just to to offer her eloquence and her worldview because it's so beautiful. Laura Moss from the National Anger Management Association. If if you could share some thoughts and feedback in relationship to your work and our work and hearing Kwame, it'd just be so great if you would do that. You have no idea how difficult it was tonight. Serena Williams is playing possibly her last match at the U.S. Open here in New York City tonight. And I am like hustling back and forth between the TV. <laughs> to see. And I was actually invited to the actual live game. And I thought, no way she's going to win. And now it's going into the third set. So oh. there you have it. And it's nine and it's after nine o'clock. So uh, for me here in New York City. But I got to tell you, I'm no doubt. I'm so glad I made this made this talk. It's such an uh, such a pleasure and an honor to meet you. And I'm so excited to read uh, your upcoming book. I think I'm hoping that there's going to be some major insights uh, for me in there. I got to tell you, this is an you know Andy said, please come uh, tonight. You know, this is something that we deal with. To be honest, I'll tell you, um, I teach anger management all across the country, all across the world. Um, all in many countries and, and U.S. and Canada. And I am usually the minority in my training, to be honest. 
a lot of my trainings are predominantly African-American and black Americans. And some I have found some want a voice and some do not. Some, you know, I've had trainings before Kwame where someone took the floor and I try to hold space in a really respectful way, feeling completely, you know, wanting to do the right thing, completely out of my element, understanding the humility of my situation. And then only to be sidelined later by another participant who said, you, that was not, that's not what we came here for. We came here to learn about anger, not to be derailed by another complete topic. You know, so the the idea of how to dance this gracefully dance, you know, and want to do the right thing and find the solutions. Like you said, I'm a solution oriented person, you know, like always, where's the where's the solution? Where's the find? Where's and leaning in with curiosity and in, in, in understanding I'm using that part of my brain to find the find some kind of solution. It really is a difficult dance to to maneuver in that in that situation so would your book um kind of offer some suggestions to those of us who might be in, on that kind of side of it so laura i'm trying to sell my book so my book does whatever you need it to do that's my <laughs> <Very good. laughs> um, <Very> good. <laughs> the, the second thing is yeah it, it, it's tricky it's tricky and i think one of the things that i i, I came to realize is that there is no definitive right answer and when it comes to this conversation, I wanted to make it clear, like in the introduction of the book, I say, I'm not going to tell you how to think about race. My goal here is to tell you how to talk about race, yeah, man. the strategy yeah, behind talking about it. And I think one of the things we have to do is, is and this is, a, this is that delicate dance that you're describing, in that situation, we have to, uh, we have to think about our goals because you came there for a purpose, had a specific job. And then at the same time, you want to make sure that you're holding space and being respectful. And so, of course, it's easy to, to, to handle this in hindsight when I wasn't there under duress in that situation. But it's one of those things where you say, listen, the, what you have brought up, this race-related issue, this is important and it deserves some time. The problem is that right now we have a specific um, schedule to adhere to. So I want to make sure that we can give this time right now, looking at the clock, I have about five minutes that we can spend on this topic. And if you want to come and talk to me afterwards, I would love to go deeper with you on that. Um, and so that's a way that you can have the person feel respected and seen while still honoring the, the desires of the other people in the room. And the other thing was I was intentionally not paying attention to the tennis, Laura, because even though I talk about sex <laughs> all the time, I, uh, third I, set. I She's going tennis. to the third set. She better win. I'm an avid Is tennis she... player and a fan myself. See, I've been playing since I was six. I was president of the oh. tennis club team at OSU because I was not good enough to make the real team. But I did take the team to nationals and I got to chat with Billie Jean King. Uh, so oh, wow. Pretty cool. Yeah, so I, I love me some tennis. I've met Serena. Love She's a powerhouse. She's awesome. That, that is awesome. Very cool. Well, it, it's, I'm a huge tennis fan. I've played tennis for my, most, most of my adolescence and adult years. So it's a big night in the world of tennis because Serena, you know, this is maybe her last match, but it's looking pretty good right now. Um, anyway, it was really great to hear that comment because that is kind of where Andy and I have landed in these trainings. That is kind of where we've landed in, in how we manage it. And really, honestly, this training that I'm talking about in particular, I asked the girl, I said, please stay after with me, both of them. Let me hear, hold space for the one. And then let me hear the thoughts of the other one. Like, how should I do this? How do I handle this? 
And, yeah. uh, you know, she gave me some advice and that's kind of where I landed with it. So it's <laughs> nice to hear you say that and be validated in that way. So thank you. I'm looking forward to the book and uh, it's a pleasure to meet you and uh, uh, enjoy tennis for the rest of the evening. I think we've got <laughs> another set to go here. <laughs> thank you. Appreciate it. Please. She's such a wonderful human being, uh, big thinker, big advocate for um, uh, kids and our youth. Uh, living their best life, who find themselves with a nexus to the justice system. Very important work, Dr. Eisnagel. Please, Kwame Christian here for you. I appreciate that. I mean, there's obviously an incredible intersection between race and the justice system. Um, I am curious about extrapolating or scaling up the kinds of conversations you have one-on-one. And I think this gets a little bit at, at what Laura was asking as well, when you've got kind of these dynamics in a room of people. So in thinking about a broader change um, and making sure that a broader change or having a broader discussion outside of the people who are in the room with you um, in, in an immediate context, how do you facilitate that so that it's successful. I guess I'm talking about kind of a larger cultural or institutional change. So, and maybe that's yeah. something that's in the book as well. I'm curious, how you sc- how do you scale this up? Well, I, I did not actually talk about facilitating larger discussions because I think that would be a different, a different book completely. And I think we have, we have to realize that the bigger the group becomes the more it shifts from a a conversation to a presentation then it becomes very performative so we're not necessarily talking to each other but through each other to a larger group that makes it more challenging strategically and so it depends on our 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 position in that do we want to have are we are we trying to persuade that's more kind of debate skills in that type of context are we trying to facilitate discussion now, that's more on the ADR, alternative dispute resolution type of spectrum, where I feel a little bit more qualified, where we are uh, how we're creating that space where people feel safe to share. And we're setting out those ground rules, giving people appropriate time and going back and forth between people with a shared goal for everybody. And so I think it becomes it's a, it's a different game that we play. So it's still people, still psychology. But when we bring in the group dynamics, it becomes a little bit more complex. You know, and so if we're also then if we're thinking about it for larger systemic change, then we also have to think about the next step, because now we have policies and politics involved. Those are completely different um, types of um, motivators that we have to play with. Um, That was that was tough. And, you know, I I haven't I think I mentioned this on the podcast before, but the reason why I have the degrees that I have. So I started off with psychology. And then I said, okay, well, psychology and a Spanish minor. I wanted to be a therapist. That's what I wanted to do, um, like a, a psychiatrist. And so then I said, well, if I'm in, in that world, then I'm only working one-on-one. If I want to create bigger change, I need to get into policy. And so then I added another minor, Foundations of Law. And then I got the law degree and a Master of Public Policy because I said, Kwame is going to become a politician. And then I learned about politics and I said, Kwame is not going to become a politician. <laughs> I, want to <laughs> you know, so I need to find that way to affect change. And uh, I tell you, Grace, it's a, it is a difficult game that you play because we're talking about debate. That's one thing. Talking about facilitating discussion and, and gathering information. That's another thing. But when we're talking about moving policy, that's a different one. You need power. And that, this is something that I didn't, I don't really 
talk about very much because it's kind of dark. But the reality is this, when it comes to like politics, like those type of things, the universal currency is leverage. We need to have it if we're going to make major moves because moral suasion is limited uh, when you have other uh, incentives at play. Oh, brilliant. Moral suasion. That's the first time I've ever heard that. And that's what an awful lot of initiatives are, aren't they, Kwame? You know, Kwame, the book, how to get it, how to get in touch with you. Um, let us let us hear about that a little bit. Yeah. So the book should be available in all, all spots, but Amazon is is the easiest place to get it, I'm sure. Um, check out the podcast, Negotiate Anything. Also, Negotiate Real Change. We have a Spanish podcast, too, Negociacion de Cicero. If you're not following me on LinkedIn, make sure you follow me too. I, I post every single day, try to stay as active as possible and, and be generous with the content as well. And with ANI, the American Negotiation Institute, we have negotiation and conflict resolution trainings. And then we also do diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings through the lens of negotiation, because I think it's a skill, human connection, um, understanding, that's a skill. And so we uh, we don't go through go at it through the lens of political correctness. We think all of these are skills that can be learned and everybody benefits from it. Wonderful. Everyone, thank you so very much. This will be in the vault at jumpstartmastery.com, where we have conversations every week with people from around the world who are subject matter experts in crisis negotiation, um, behavioral health, public safety, all around how we support people presenting anger, aggression, and violence. This episode will also be available through Kwame Christian's network on LinkedIn, and there'll be uh, event posts that will indicate where the recording of this is. I'm sure it's going to be widely engaged. And what a genuine delight and pleasure to uh, have not a real difficult conversation with you about, about the conversation of race, Kwame. It's been a real pleasure and informative and educational and enriching. I hope that you got out of interacting with us as much as we got out of interacting with you. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a good night, everybody. Enjoy the U.S. Open. <laughs> I'll see y'all later. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.